You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so here, our passage opens this morning, John chapter 12, verse 20, with this detail uh, that you're kind of tempted to skip over, frankly, because I, in writing this sermon, I really broke down the text into four central statements of Jesus. Every time Jesus speaks, uh, these are my favorite sermons to preach, by far. Like, by far. If Jesus speaks, he, did, he does all the work for me. Like, as a preacher, I can't add to what he has to say, or right? so I just come up and just, hey, and he said this, you know? But, so you kind of want to skip over it, because he makes these four big statements. I'll give them to you up front. In this passage, he says that the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's statement number one. Statement two that he makes is that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Statement three, he says that whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates it in this world will keep it in eternal life. And lastly, he says that if anybody serves him, that he must follow him. That wherever he is, that is where his servant will be found also. And so that gives us plenty to preach about this morning, but what we can't skip over is that he's saying these things in response to a circumstance. Something has happened that has brought this, these words, these statements from Jesus's lips. And my prayer as we look at his response is that we will see three things this morning, that we will see chiefly why Jesus died, number one, why Jesus died. Number two, that we will see for whom he died. And lastly, that we will see how he calls us to respond to those first two truths. Let's look at our text together. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Pastor Brett preached it last week that the feast we're talking about is the Passover feast. And yet, coming up to worship at this feast are some Greeks. Now, the Passover is a distinctly Jewish feast. And coming up to worship at this feast are some Greeks. And so because this is abnormal, people have speculated all kinds of different things about who these Greeks are. And a lot of it's wrong, and and some of it's right, and I'm going to tell you what's right. The Greeks that are referenced here are, wait for it, Greeks. And that should go without saying, right? But because they're coming up to worship, because they want to observe the Passover, some have speculated that these were Hellenistic Jews, that these were Jews who were greatly influenced by Greek culture, who subscribed to Greek traditions, but that they were really Jews. Others would say that these were Greeks who have been circumcised, who have fully come into Jewish tradition and custom, and that's why they were there. What I can tell you decidedly is that these were Greeks, And there are different words for Greeks in the Greek, and the Greeks that we are referencing here, we're talking about ethnic Greeks, not people who speak Greek, not people who like Greek tradition. We're talking about Greeks, and they're coming up to worship at the feast. And the reason why I might press back a little bit and say that they're probably not Greeks who are circumcised and who have fully subscribed to Jewish tradition is that on arrival, who are they looking for? Verse 21, and these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they were coming up to the Passover feast, this same Passover feast that the ethnic Jews were seeking to crucify Jesus. 
these Greeks come up and they're looking for him in a positive fashion. They're there to see him. This is abnormal. And this is magnificent. And if you've been with Mercy's Door for some time, then you know that the great herald of our message, the great central doctrine of our message that has been the will of the Father from eternity past to bring all things under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, that every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that that's what he's ultimately doing in purchasing a remnant for himself and then scattering us amongst the, the peoples of the earth to spread the gospel is that he is gathering for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And here, before Jesus has even gone to a cross yet, some Greeks are making their way up to the Passover feast seeking Jesus. They want to see him. And so they go and they find Philip and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, another kind of, uh, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but kind of showing us that this is abnormal. Philip didn't know what to do with this information with this situation. So he goes and he tells Andrew, Andrew, there are these Greeks that have come up to worship and they want to see Jesus. What should we do? So Philip, not wanting to go alone, Andrew, not wanting to go alone, they both go to Jesus. So the Greeks go to Philip, Philip goes to Andrew, Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. Jesus, there are these Greeks that have come up to worship and they're asking for you. And Jesus answers them these four statements. I set up this context to say that what we're about to hear from Jesus is in response to the fact that the nations have started to seek him. That these people from the, from the Greek ethnicity have come up to the Jewish feast seeking Jesus. This is radical. This is the beginning, the earliest grumblings of the formation of the church among the Gentile people. You guys being Gentile people, this is the first kind of movement toward your salvation, toward my salvation, toward the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ reaching beyond the Jewish city center. And this is what he has to say to them. First he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, there are these Greeks, and they've come up to worship, and they, and they want to they see you. They're asking to see you. Jesus' response, it is time. It's time. The time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, is his response. The Greeks are here. It's time connect it. The pull of my ministry is starting, to, is starting to bring the nations to me. It's time. This is what I was here for. It's time for the Son to be glorified. And I want us to focus on the fact that Jesus uses the word glorified because we all know what he's talking about. He's going to make it super obvious what he's talking about. I generally try to, when Jesus speaks, I try to preach all of the text, everything he had to say in one sermon because that's how the original hearers would have received it. So if he was there and just talking in one continuous teaching, I try to do it the same way. I didn't do it this time. So I'm going to borrow from next week and just say that he says in this same interaction, down in verse, what is it, 30, that 
uh, the ruler of this world will be cast out and I will be lifted up from the earth and will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So within this interaction, he makes it super clear what he's talking about when he says, it's time for me to be glorified. He's saying it's time for me to be crucified. It's time for the sun to be lifted up. It's time to die. The hour of my death is now here. It has arrived. And yet he calls it his glorification. It is time for me in my crucifixion, in my death, to be glorified. I'm going to cross-reference Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 on down through 13. I'm going to go back and forth between our passage this morning and this passage several times. But I want you to track with me, okay? And I'll come back to it in a minute. But Paul writes in this passage, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, My hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In humbling himself and taking the form of man, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that it is through this we just read in Philippians chapter 2 that he would be elevated and highly exalted above every name that is ever named, that every knee would come and confess. He's talking about his glorification through death. His glorification through death. How? Verse 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. Pause. He's talking about himself. He is the grain of wheat. He says, unless I go into the earth and die, I remain alone. I remain alone. Well, we know that Jesus is never alone. He and the Father are one. So alone in what, Jesus? Alone in what? He, unless he goes into the earth and dies, he remains alone in righteousness before the Father. He remains alone as the only human to live a perfect life, to be credited with the perfect glorification of the Father and perfect union with the Father. He is the only one, the only human in all of history who can claim to have true righteousness, to have the fullness of the righteousness of God upon him, to have the full approval of the Father, to have a seat at the table in the kingdom of heaven with the Father. That unless he dies, he says, unless I die and go into the earth, I remain alone. You can't come with me unless I die, is what Jesus has to say here. So for why did he die? Why did he die? Is question number one. That he would not remain alone 
in the ways that I've just described. But that instead he would bear much fruit. He said, if, but if, it dies. It bears much fruit. So who is the fruit was the second thing we wanted to answer this morning. For whom did he die? It's you. It's you. You are the fruit of his death. You are the fruit of his death. Look at me. You. When they were seeking him, the Greeks were seeking him. He said, I got to go die now. Because what they're seeking, they can't have unless I die. What everyone before those Greeks was seeking, they could not have unless he died. To bear fruit, the church, a people, wrapped up in his death, he had to go first. He had to go first. Why did he die to bear fruit? Who is the fruit? You are the fruit. He died for you. And truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And here we need to pause because here in verse 25, he's going to take a turn. He's going to start talking about what it looks like, what, what his fruit looks like. What his fruit looks like, okay? But before I go there, I need to be cautious because I need to acknowledge the sin that is in all of us that is going to want to take what Jesus is about to say and make it something very different from what he is saying. What Jesus is describing in verse 25 and onward is what the fruit looks like. He is not talking about how a fruit becomes a fruit. What fruit looks like is a description. But he is not describing how you become a fruit. He's just told you how you bear fruit. Jesus dies. When Jesus goes into the grave and gives up his life as a ransom for many, who by faith alone, in him alone, can be joined with him in his death and then joined with him in his resurrection, that is how you achieve fruit status. You are the church on account of what someone else has done for you. This is the great message of Christianity, that you do not achieve righteousness with God, that you do not achieve right standing with the Father, but that on the merits of Christ alone, you can stand boldly before the throne of grace because of what another has done for you, what you could not do on your own merit, what you could not do in your own strength. This is the message of Christianity, and you need to hear that first. Jesus died for you, and if he didn't die for you, he'd remain alone. Nobody joins him in his army of saints on account of their works. You're joined to him on account of his death. Full stop. So then what does it look like once he's done it? Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
So on what basis does Jesus then move from saying, what I do, I do to bear fruit. I do to ransom a church, a people, a remnant unto myself. On what basis does he then move to talk about how you can distinguish between those who are fruit on the vine and those who are fruit rotting on the ground? What he's describing here is how we work out our salvation. And this is why in, I, I pulled in Philippians chapter 2. For us this morning. Let's look at it again. Again. Paul is writing, if there's any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love or any participation in the Spirit or any affection and sympathy to complete his joy by being of one mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, to do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. So let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among us, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but releases it. He empties himself, verse 7, takes the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, found in human form, humbles himself, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Jesus says, flipping back, that if you, if you love him, if you, if you would serve him, that you must follow him, and when he's made it completely certain within this interaction what he's talking about, where he says where he's going, he's saying, follow me into death. Follow me into death. And it's a much easier message for me to stand up here and tell you the other half of this truth which is that Jesus died that you might live. Yes and amen. Jesus died that you might live. But Jesus died that you might die, that you might live. Jesus died that you might die, that you might live. Jesus lives that you might live. You see, it's those who join him in his death who join him in his resurrection. We're not going to like pass the cup now. Your physical death is already written. The, the hour of your physical death is written. Jesus is talking about the death of the flesh, the death of yourself. Like Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That Christ died to, that he has died to sin and, he lived, and he's been raised again to Christ. Because this is what, like, Jesus on a cross is not some symbol as some, like, model for you to look to as some encouragement to you. Jesus pinned upon a cross did not just absorb the wrath of God. He absorbed the wrath of God with your sin upon it. But your sin is your very nature. You inherited it by Adam. You were born into sin. Your very self was pinned to Christ on the cross. And the wrath of God due to you was poured out on Christ on the cross so that the former you, sinful Zach, sinful Pat, was pinned to the cross with Jesus and his wrath was poured out on it. You've been judged and you didn't make it. The judgment of God was poured out on you and you didn't make it, praise God. The former self has passed away. But behold, the new has come. Raised again in new life by the Holy Spirit who has taken up 
residence in you. So Jesus starts to talk about what it looks like. How do you know you're a fruit? Because you're following him. Well, where's he going? To a cross. So I'm asking you, are you bearing your cross? Because if the way to life everlasting is through death, and Jesus has said it in no uncertain terms, what it means is that you don't get to bring your life into the new life. It's not a both situation. We don't add Jesus to our life. We lay down our life, and then, we, and then he takes it up again. But when he does that, he takes control. Because for Jesus to be your Savior, Jesus must be your Lord. And if he's Lord, that means that he's the one pulling the strings of your life. And that's what death means. It means that you're not God of you anymore. But that you yield to Christ as your God. So here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore... God has highly exalted him. He's bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, since that, as you've always obeyed, so now only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Adam, I thought that you just said that Jesus Christ, by the merits of his life, death, and resurrection alone, I am reconciled to God, that I'm made right by the merits of another. That's what you just said. Now you're telling me, work out my salvation with what? Fear and trembling? What are we talking about? We're talking about death. If the way to life is death, and death isn't causing you fear and trembling, you're probably not dying. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling looks like taking an account of your life and offering it to Christ in worship, laying it down that he might take lordship of your life. You guys might remember the story from Mark of the rich young ruler who approaches Jesus zealously. And he says, good teacher, tell me what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you know, the, first of all, why do you call me good? Only God is good. This is the first thing he says. And if only God is good, then you have no business calling me good unless you're ready to call me God. So I don't, go, I don't do the good teacher thing. It's good God. But that aside, he says to him, you know the commandments. And the guy gets excited, and he's like, well, I've followed them since my youth. He says, Jesus looked at him with love, and he says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And the man, it says, walks away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
So you can zealously approach Jesus. You can ask him, I want eternal life. Tell me, how? He can give you the rules. You can say, I'll follow the rules. But when he demands it all, when he tries to put his finger on the one thing that you won't let go into the grave, you walk away sorrowful at the final hour as Jesus gazes on you with love. Because you counted the cost and you decided it was too great. So here we see a picture from Paul working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It made me think about a number of passages. In Psalm 14, you don't need the slides, but in Psalm 14, the psalmist writes that it is the fool who says there is no God. In Psalm 10, it says it is the wicked who all of his thoughts are there is no God. In Zephaniah chapter 1, it says that for the wicked, they think to themselves that the Lord will not do good and neither will he do ill. In Psalm 94, it says that the wicked go about their wicked deeds and they say to themselves, the Lord doesn't see, the Lord does not see. But Jeremiah chapter 16, God speaks through his prophet and says, first I will send fishers, think God. But then hunters, and my eyes are on all their ways. Fear and trembling. Because your perfect, holy God, who by the power of his word brought all things into existence and sustains it by the word of his power, this God, who is sovereign over all, who made you and knows the number of the hairs on your head, who claims lordship over your life, is at work. And he sees all. And he has searched the hearts of men. And what we know is that we were found guilty. And the only difference between you and the unrepentant sinner is that your sin was upon another when judgment fell upon it. But apart from Christ, your sin remains upon you when his wrath is poured out. And you cannot endure the wrath of God towards sin. You can't. You need one to step in for you and praise God he sent the Son to do it. This last sentence from Philippians chapter 2, that it is that to working out our salvation with fear and trembling, he says that it's because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What the heck? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who's willing and working in you. Don't you see, when you have come into new life, when you have laid down your life, like I have, like you have, church, when you have died the death of your sin, the death of your flesh, and been raised with Christ in new life, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, and God starts calling all the shots. Work that out with fear and trembling. You mean he gets to ask you to do whatever he wants? And you mean the only option for you is obedience? Because in ransoming you, yes, he made you his son, praise God. But you belong to him. Amen. Church, my desire 
as we fix our eyes on Jesus like this is never to sow a single seed of doubt in the children of God. Your sonship, to go back to point number one, was purchased for you. Your status before holy God, your approval before him, your right standing before him is on the merits of Christ alone, not yours. But if you're his, you'll look like fruit. And healthy fruits connected to the vine. And so as you soberly consider for yourself, have I died? Or have I seasoned my life with Jesus? Am I trying to cover the stench of death with religious platitudes? Am I trying to earn off the bad stuff with good works, but otherwise stay in control of my life? I'm still my Lord. Have I minimized Jesus to be my Savior, but not my Lord? I want protection from the consequences of my life, but I don't want to surrender lordship to you to get it. Save me from hell, Jesus, but don't tell me what to do. Jesus said that he who loves his life will lose it but that he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So church, I guess I want to see us hating our lives. <laughs> and I don't know what that looks like for you. It'd be so great if I could preach a 10-point sermon on how to hate your life. But here's the thing. Your life's different from mine. The things that Jesus would have you lay down might be different from the things that he would have me lay down. I don't know. That's why we do gospel community, so be there. So we can work through those things. But here's what I say. I, I can't preach it enough at Mercy's Door, so I'll say it again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is totally free in that you cannot earn it. You can't do anything to pay for it. But it's costly in that you can't take hold of it until you put everything else down. You can't have your hands full of all your other quests for righteousness and significance and meaning and then add the gospel to it. You drop it all and you bow at the feet of Jesus and for free, he gives you new life. And so I want to remind you again to find it there. And listen, if this is your first time grappling with this, come and talk to me. And if this is the thousandth time you've grappled with this, just know me too. That's why we need each other. In a minute here, we're going to go out and we're going to celebrate some baptisms. And we are going to see some people who want to obey Jesus. You know, he said in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And this is the Great Commission. Like, this is awesome, right? But we always skip that last sentence, don't we? Like, we like, like make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey. All that he commanded, well, that would take a lifetime, wouldn't it? Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you? That would take a lifetime of gospel community, wouldn't it? But we have some people this morning who desire to obey Jesus, to follow him, 
He said, follow me into my death that you might follow me into my resurrection. And part of that is following him into those waters of baptism. And there are some here this morning who are ready to do that, which is incredible. So I'm going to get out of the way this morning that we might see with our eyes a picture of what I'm trying to describe this morning. And we'll kind of continue the sermon out there. But first, let's take some time and talk to God, like you and him. Make a real answer. Make no assumptions for where you stand this morning. What are you clinging on to that he would have you lay down, bury with Christ, that he might take it up again?